I believe that America is in the midst of a political war. We as a nation are not far removed from the civil unrest that sparked the war between the states back in 1861. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. American democracy is enduring an unprecedented test. An American president, Donald Trump, capped off months of denying the reality that he had lost his election by inciting his followers to rise up and vent their rage against the U.S. Congress. Thousands of Trump supporters, overwhelmingly angry white men, mounted a violent insurrection and laid siege to our nation's capital in an effort to stop the counting of electoral votes to certify the election of President-elect Joe Biden. These American terrorists echoed Trump's exhortations that something had been stolen from them. Symbols of the Confederacy and white nationalism were everywhere. This was Trump's last stand, and its racist underpinnings were on full and ugly display. To get some perspective on the insurrection, the enduring scourge of white supremacy, and of this Martin Luther King weekend, we turn to Reverend Dr. Arnold Isidore Thomas, pastor of the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Jericho, Vermont. Reverend Thomas is moderator of the Racism in America forums and former conference minister of the Vermont Conference of the United Church of Christ, in which he was the first black denominational leader in the state. Reverend Thomas's career has taken him from ministries in the Deep South to education at Yale University and being a minister at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Reverend Arnold Thomas, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. President Trump told Americans that the 2020 election was stolen, and he singled out voters in cities with large black and brown communities, such as Philadelphia, Detroit, and Atlanta, uh, and blamed them for this theft. And last week, many of the terrorists who assaulted the U.S. Capitol were associated with white supremacist groups. What is your response to this whole through line of rhetoric and then action? Well, David, I believe that America is in the midst of a political war. I refuse to call it a civil war because there's nothing civil at all about war. But we have been enduring a sitting president who throughout his tenure has fanned the flames of social discord to the point where we as a nation are not far removed from the civil unrest that sparked the war between the states back in 1861. I also believe that most Americans are upset about the direction this nation is headed. And the violent and treasonous incident that occurred on January 6th is the kind of behavior that Americans on all sides of the political spectrum must condemn, but especially within the Republican Party even as Democrats in the 1960s needed to separate themselves from the racist Southern Dixocrats. 
For the past four years, David, we have endured uh, a Republican president, which many of the Republican leaders have condoned and excused his divisive behavior and rhetoric because they wanted to push their conservative agenda. And that's okay, that's to be understood. But by so doing, they have also tolerated the worst sort of behavior and tactics unbecoming of any national leader. A behavior which as a result of his defeat in the 2020 elections has manifest itself in the most bizarre and whining display of immaturity. A behavior which, despite the evidence from Republican officials, despite the decision of Republican appointed jurists that he lost the election, he continues to refuse to admit defeat and refuses to accept the legal process that all sides, including those in his own cabinet, concedes with a fair election. And by this unwillingness to accept defeat, by his unwillingness to accept the fairness of our nation, of our nation's electoral process, continuing to claim baseless allegations that the election was stolen from him, he has incited the most dangerous and extreme elements of the Republicans to constituency. I'm referring to the avowed racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, paramilitary bullies who incited the, who, who, who being incited by his anti-concessionist intimidations stage the attempted coup of January 6 against our nation's government. Now, it is, it is in this, it is in this dangerous element, it is this dangerous element along with the president that incited it, that law abiding members of the Republican party and the nation as a whole must sever ourselves from this element. If we are to continue as a nation that abides by the rule of law, then we must divorce ourselves from a president who refuses to accept the rule of law when it doesn't go his right way. So I wrote a letter to Congressman Peter Welch, copying Senators Bernie Sanders, Senator Patrick Leahy, Senator Chuck Schumer, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi urging Congress to enforce a law that states this, and I'll, I'll read it to you. It is the, it is Article 18, in dealing with rebellion and insurrection. And this is what it says. Whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or give aid or comfort thereto shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both and shall be incapable of holding any office 
under the United States. It's my feeling that if the president and others responsible for this treasonous behavior are not held accountable, I foresee the creation of a third national party led by Trump and possibly Steve Bannon or Ted Cruz that will not only splinter the Republican party, but embolden the false narrative fueled by the extreme right to undermine our nation's democracy. We have to take a stand against this kind of leadership, which is really tyrannical leadership. Just as the Democrats had to sever themselves from the Dixiecrats, the segregationist Dixiecrats of the 1960s, who for the most part joined the Republican Party, the Republican Party has to now segregate itself, sever itself from this most extreme element within its own party. You begin by mentioning the Civil War mm -hmm. and this talk of stealing something that Trump cites, something being stolen from them, which is, you know, been hugely uh, animating for these white supremacist forces. Um, and I know that you worked uh, in the Deep South for in Arkansas, you were a pastor yep. there as well. Can you give us some insight? What was what do, are they referring to was stolen from them? What is this connection to the Civil War? Are we essentially seeing kind of a continuation of the same grievance that motivated the Civil War? I think I think really the Civil War has not truly died. The uh, the feelings, the animosity that the South felt as a result of losing the Civil War continues. The only difference is that along with this animosity is emerging a new element within the South that includes people of color that are taking uh, a more leadership role as we saw displayed in the most recent uh, senatorial elections in Georgia. That's that's an indication of what's to come as people of color, as black and brown people start assuming rights that were centuries denied them. We're seeing the emergence of a new South, but also the emergence of a new form of democracy that's more inclusive of people of color. And as a result, I think a lot of conservatives who wish to maintain the status quo are upset, are afraid, and are putting a lot of money behind individuals who wish to maintain what they're used to. And I think a national dialogue is certainly necessary, is, is, is needed to bring those different factions together, Black, brown, white people together to, to get to know each other, uh, to know that we're, that there, there are common goals and objectives that we're trying to achieve for our families, for future generations, that, that we can rally around. And once we get to know those common goals, 
appreciate those common goals and the personal connections we have with individuals on all sides. I think the flames will start to diffuse and we'll start to see each other more so as Americans, more so as neighbors, more so as members of our families rather than as enemies. And that's going to be a dangerous, up. that's going to be an awesome, difficult uphill battle. Um, to that, that seems like an understatement. Uh, you saw those pictures of those angry mobs. Yep. Those didn't like look like people to me who I could talk to. Yeah. But when you separate them from the mob, and I think that's the, that's the difficulty, when you separate them from the mob and see them as individuals, see them as people in your neighborhood, um, you can see a different individual. You, you see a different perspective aspect of individuals. And um, uh, I, I'm reminded of, of the book by Niebuhr, Moral Man, Immoral Society. Um, we, we have to learn to distinguish our individual desires and needs and distinguish them and balance them with the needs of a greater society. How can we, how can we engage the society in ways that is not, that is not violent, that is not um, destructive, but can affirm that we as many people can actually work together in solving some common, some common dilemmas that we as a nation have been dealing with since the inception, since our inception as a nation. We can overcome this, but we need to separate ourselves from a mob mentality and, and pursue something more, more, more redeeming. You wrote in a commentary for Vermont Digger last year, uh, and it began, what white Americans refer to as a crisis, black Americans call business as usual. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, White Americans were, I think, finally getting a first-hand look at the at the crisis that they have been facing. Uh, their eyes seem, at that time I wrote the article, they seem to be finally waking up to the realities of of of, of injustice that American minorities black and brown people have been experiencing on a daily basis since the inception of this nation and before the inception of this nation. Uh, the George Floyd incident was still another reminder of how, um, how racial injustice has been perpetrated against blacks and brown people. And, and I think that incident where, where whites were able to see this. Thank God for the person with that, with that, with that um, smartphone or whatever it was that viewed the incident, that shared this, that went viral. Were able to see firsthand the atrocities uh, of of their of their ignorance to this this reality, and uh, and wake up to the fact that this is a normal daily 
experience of black and brown people in this country. I think that the incident of the George Floyd murder uh, was on the par of Emmett Till, the open casket of Emmett Till and his brutally deformed body uh, that was that was the target of racist attacks against this young black man. It was the equivalent of that kind of awakening to the atrocities that many black and brown people have are experiencing every day to this very to this very day. That's what I meant. You also go on, uh, you wrote, uh, and you go on to criticize, quote, the noisy gong and clashing symbol-like rhetoric of whites who momentarily raise their voices against what they see as a momentary crisis and then resume their lives supporting and sustaining the systemic racism that caused it. What role should whites play in righting racial justice wrongs? I think we should all, um, I think we should all um, accept that there is a reality that we have, um, that we have not, that we have chosen not to accept. I think the fact that we as, as Americans are living in separate, isolated, bubbles of reality and are choosing to uh, live in those realities apart from each other prevents any kind of meaningful dialogue. I will either I will either subscribe to the perspective of Fox News or I will prescribe to the perspective of MSNBC. I will either adhere to the perspective of Donald Trump or adhere to the perspective of more or more moderate or liberal leanings. It seems right now we're in those divided camps, refusing to meet with, refusing to have any meaningful dialogue with one another. But if we're going to overcome this divide, those bubbles have to be shattered. There has to be an attempt on the part of all sides to to first of all acknowledge a reliable common source of reality, a common source of truth that we can all turn to. That's going to be the one big hurdle that we need to overcome. The federal government right now is pursuing an investigation to find out the individuals, the sources behind the event that took place on January 6th. My question is, when that information comes forward, which I trust will be as objective as as intentional in bringing forth the truth, when that information comes forward, are we all going to accept it as reliable, authoritative uh, uh, foundations of, of truth that we can move from or are we going to stay divided in our separate camps, believing what we have been conditioned to believe? We know that President Trump is going to continue to assume, to believe that the, the election was stolen from him and, and 
my question, my hope is that there are there will be enough there will be enough Republicans, as we have seen a growing number of Republicans within the Senate, within the House, even within his own cabinet, say that what he did was wrong, his involvement was wrong. We need to continue to embolden those Republicans to continue to come forward, to continue to speak out bravely, even as we need to continue all other Americans within different parties, within different factions, to say that there is an element of truth that's out there that we that we as a whole need to embrace, but we are, for whatever reason, having difficulty doing so because it will upset in some way the conditions, the experiences of truth that we have been accustomed to. Somehow we must bridge that divide, find some common ground to move forward. We're not there yet. Vermonters often, we often speak about, uh, you know, Vermonters think of themselves as exceptional. You know, COVID is really bad in Los Angeles, but here in Vermont, not so bad. Uh, similarly, the conversation about racism can seem very antiseptic or in some ways removed from Vermont the way that Vermonters talk about it. It's mm -hmm. something that happens out there. What would you say to that? What is, how does race and racism factor here in Vermont? Well, I, again, I think Vermonters for a long time have lived within a bubble of reality that was not true. Uh, uh, with the with the recent installation of stopping stones, of a stopping stone, which is a commemorative marker acknowledging that the family of our founding father, Ethan Allen, um, was, was tolerant of slavery, even though the Constitution uh, in its day was probably a uh, a radical departure from the from the uh, common modes of slavery that existed, it was still a constitution that endorsed slavery to some extent. A person could be enslaved if that person was was female up to 18 years of age, if that person was male up to 21 years of age. So child slavery was endorsed within the constitution of Vermont. There was a tolerance uh, uh, within within our early within our early history as a state for a, a, a program, an, an institution called um, the Col Colonial Society of America, which so which reflected, I think, the, the 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 perspective of many early Vermonters that even though the institution of slavery was sinful they rejected the notion and felt threatened by the notion of free blacks competing for jobs, living alongside them uh, in, in their neighborhoods as equal human beings, and therefore endorsed a program of encouraging black free blacks to return, to not, not to return, but to go to West Africa and colonize and, and quote unquote, civilize the native population there. It was an effort to try and separate free blacks from free whites. 
And that kind of uh, perception of African-Americans as second-class citizens, if, if even if they are free citizens, permeated much of the 18th century, the 19th century, and even into the 20th century. We, must, we need to remember that even in the 20th century, there was a strong chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in different parts of the state. There was that tolerance for racial segregation, for, for the dehumanization of Black people well into the 20th century of Vermont. And that lingers today. So we, can, we, need, to stop, can, we need to stop deluding ourselves that Vermont is this sort of spotless um, uh, uh, state when it comes to segregation, when it comes to um, uh, uh, dehumanizing attitudes and racist attitudes towards people of color. We are not. We certainly, we certainly did a, uh, an enormous job in trying to diminish and to end the institution of slavery. But those elements that try to end it, the strong radical abolitionist movement within the state was counterbalanced by a strong element to preserve a notion that blacks were inferior. January 15th would have been the 92nd birthday of Martin Luther King. This is a time of very deep polarization. I will not say unprecedented polarization, because as we've been discussing, there have been many eras of depolarization. What is your message to Vermonters on this Martin Luther King weekend? I think my message to Vermonters is to, to realize that while we are among the whitest states in the union. Vermont is, I think, is second only to Maine as, as being the whitest state in the union. The other states are, that are included in that makeup are New Hampshire, West Virginia, Iowa. We are among the whitest states in the union. But that means that we must try extra hard in creating um, a culture of tolerance, creating uh, an appreciation of difference that, that provides a, an environment whereby people of color will want to come to this state. Because my fear is, and I continue to, I continue to um, articulate this fear, that if we don't move in that direction, Vermont, like other white, predominantly white states in the union, will become a haven for the most extreme kind of racist elements that we saw displayed on January 6. Vermont will become a haven for such individuals uh, who will try to promote their propaganda, promote um, their way of life and perception of life uh, uh, in ways that will disenfranchise other portions of this state, other people in this state that are trying to make this a more acceptable, uh, diverse climate. We also need to accept, and I think accept with 
celebration that our nation as a whole is gradually browning. And that means that whether we like it or not, we have to adjust to the reality that somehow we have to, uh, we have to accommodate that reality in ways of learning beforehand, before, the, before, it, before it actually happens, ways of learning how to be in dialogue, be in community with people of color. It is those, it is those, that kind of preparation that I think will prepare us for a greater future, a more tolerant future, a, a, a brighter future. Um, and that I think would, would um, uplift the legacy that Martin Luther King has had, had tried to promote throughout his life. Well, Reverend Arnold Thomas, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. Reverend Arnold Thomas is the pastor of the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Jericho. He is the moderator of the Racism in America forums and former conference minister of the Vermont Conference of the United Church of Christ. He was the first black denominational leader in the state. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.